Good morning, Mercy House. Um, my name is Jamie, and I have Parker, my daughter, here with me. Um, and I'm going to read the scripture for us this morning. We're going to be in the book of John, chapter 14, verses 25 through 31. It'll take a minute to find that in your Bible or flip there on your phone. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we're just so thankful for another Sunday morning that we get to gather here at Mercy House, Lord, to um, just bring praise and glory and honor to your name, God. Um, we're just, we're very thankful um, for the gift of your son, Jesus, and the perfect life that he lived and the sacrifice that he gave for us on the cross, Lord. We remember that today, God. Um, and even as um, Jesus says here he had to go away, Lord, we're even more thankful that we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit um, to dwell with us, Lord, um, and just to be an ever-present with us. Um, we just pray, God, that we would feel the peace that he brings to us, Lord, as we anticipate um, the return of Jesus, God. I just pray this morning for Jake as he's bringing the word, um, that you would um, just be speaking through him today, not his words, Lord, but your words, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Seated. Well, good morning, Mercy House. My name is Jake Blackwood. I'm an elder here. Uh, I am going to do the announcements today, so just a couple of brief announcements. Wednesday night, we will have a meeting at 6.30 downstairs for a Bible study. Uh, so uh, everyone's invited to that. So uh, make sure to mark that down in your calendars. Uh, that's been a really sweet time of just reflection and prayer uh, in, for the whole church. Uh, the second announcement is that uh, nominations are due for the pastoral search committee by July 31st. Uh, go to the website if you want some more information on that, but that's due by July 31st. Um, okay, so it's Family Worship Sunday, so I don't have to dismiss the kids. Instead, I'm going to have all grade school kids to come down front, and we're going to have a little kids lesson to start off. Come on down. Got one, got two, three, four, five, six. All right. Hey guys, how's it going? Good. 
having a good morning so far? I've got a question for you. What's your favorite place to go or visit? What's your, what's your favorite place? Disney World? Well, that's a pretty good place. All right, anybody else got a, got a favorite place? Hmm? Disney's a pretty good example, right? Disney's all right, so, okay. You haven't been there? Okay, okay, all right, that's all right. No other ideas? Okay, all right, that's good. Disney World. Uh, Parker, since you said uh, that you like Disney World, uh, do you have a brother or a sister? I should know this, but go ahead and tell me. You have a brother or sister? Okay. All right. What's their, what's their, what's their name? Mirabelle and Oscar. Mirabelle and Oscar? Okay. Do you, uh, do you love them? Do you love your brother or sister? Okay. All right. Do you guys love your brothers or sisters too? Yeah? You love your brothers or sisters? What if I told you that Oscar or Mirabelle or one of your brothers or sister, that they were going to Disney World, but you don't get to go? How would that make you feel? Sad? You feel sad? Okay. How would you guys feel? Yeah, thumbs down. Big thumbs down, right? Yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't feel very good, right? Oh, yeah, maybe you're sad. Maybe you're disappointed. Maybe you might even say, well, if I don't get to go, then I don't want them to go either, right? You might say that. But how should we feel? How do you... We should be grateful, yeah? Excited for them, right? Yeah, that's how we should feel. We should feel happy for them. Yeah, grateful for what we get. That's very good. Very much anticipating where we're going here. So the night before uh, Jesus died, he spent some time with his disciples. These were his friends, his brothers, right? And he's telling them, I'm going away. And I'm not just going away, I'm going to the Father, all right, who sent me. This isn't the first time that he's told them that he's going away. He talks about it a lot, but, you know, it, this is the first time that he's sort of saying, it's, it's happening. And the disciples hear this, and they're, they're like, can we come too? Like you would be if I told you Mirabelle was going to Disney World. You'd, like be, you'd be like, can we come too? They're, they're saying the same things. We want to see the Father. Can we come too? So they're not happy for Jesus, but they're sad, maybe a little disappointed. All right. But there's some things that they just don't understand. If I told you that Mirabelle or Oscar, one of your brothers or sisters or one of your friends, was going to Disney World, but they had to walk there, would you want to go? Do you want to do that? You know, that's a long way to walk, right? Maybe you would, maybe you'd be interested in doing that, but I, I would say that it would be pretty tough. And Jesus also knew that in order to go where he was going, to go to the Father, he had to suffer. He had to fly. Well, he had to ascend into heaven eventually, right? Yeah, that's true. But first he had to suffer, right? And he died. Disney's not worth that, right? Yeah. I'd say so. <laughs> and the disciples did not know what Jesus was about to have to go do. And second, Jesus says, they're, they're also going to get to go eventually, just not yet. All right? It would be like me saying, I'm going to Disney. You can't come right now. But when you come, it's going to be the best time ever. So part of it is that they're going to get to go eventually, and so they should be grateful, like you said earlier, right? And finally, Jesus said that he was going to give them something that was even better than if he had remained. He was going to give them the Holy Spirit. 
So think about this. Would you, would you rather Jesus was still around, kind of walking in the world, right? Maybe he'd come visit. Maybe he'd come, like, you know, do some sermons. You might be able to see him, hear him talk. Would you guys like that? That'd be pretty cool, right? Well, Jesus says that if you listen to his words that we read in the Bible, if you kids continue to hear and learn what it means to follow Christ, to follow Jesus, and you believe, he's going to give you the Spirit, which he says is even better than if he had remained walking around and talking and teaching us, because the Holy Spirit is God. So remember this. We talk about this all the time, right, that we believe in a triune God, that there is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and who? In the Holy Spirit. Very good. The Holy Spirit gives us peace, comfort, and help. And He helps us remember the, the words of Jesus. When you memorize those verses in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is helping you to remember them. And He's always with us when we believe in Jesus. So we should be happy that Jesus has returned to the Father. All right? We should be happy for Him. We should be happy that the Spirit has been given to us. And we should look forward to the day when Jesus comes back to take us to the Father. It's going to be a whole lot better than Disney. I promise you that. All right. So let's pray. And then I can send you guys back. Father, I thank you that you sent your Son, that you loved us so much to send him, for him to take on humanity, teach us, and die for us. We rejoice that he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is now seated at your right hand. We thank you, Father, for giving us your spirit to accomplish all that is in your will, to guide us, comfort us, and give us peace. We pray for these little ones, that your spirit would draw them to you by your word, and that they would be saved, and that you would receive all glory due to you, O God. Amen. All right, guys, you can go back to your seats. Thank you. Give it up for the kids. That's so fun. Well, Mercy House, I am so glad to see you here this morning, and I am glad to be able to preach from this text to you. If you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks, we're currently on the third week of a series on the Upper Room Discourse in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 to 16. So this passage of Scripture is an extended dialogue between Jesus and his disciples on the night he was to be betrayed. It reiterates and expands on much of what he has said previously to them. It also extends teaching about himself, his relationship with the Father, and how the disciples are to respond. And it reveals much about what is to come for all of them. It is both intimate and comforting, but it's also deeply theological and challenging. In previous weeks, we have heard Jesus informing his disciples that he is returning to the Father, that he is to prepare a place for them, that he is the way, the only way, to the Father, that the Father and Him are one, that, and that we are to do works greater than the ones that He accomplished when He goes to the Father. 
So we read, la- we read last week in particular that we are to keep Christ's commandments out of love, but he also comforted his disciples who might have been distressed by all this, I'm going away from you talk, I'm leaving talk. And he promises them the Holy Spirit. He addresses their hearts, potentially the despair they might be feeling by assuring them of the coming of the helper or the paraclete. In our passage today, then, Jesus is going to repeat some of what we have heard before. Primarily, he's going to continue to talk about his leaving to return to the Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and what both of those things will mean for the disciples and Jesus. So let's start in verse 25 and 26. Since he is going away, he continues to expound on what the coming of the Holy Spirit will mean for the disciples. So in these verses, we get a very specific way the Holy Spirit will help the disciples. We read the following. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. One way the Spirit of truth that John's talking about, that one way that he will dwell within the disciples as we saw last week, one way he will be a paraclete or a helper will be to help them remember the words Jesus spoke. Now, maybe there was some scribbling down of words in the upper room at this time. I'm not going to rule that out. But this passage seems to suggest that for this group of men in the upper room who'd been following Jesus, listening to his words, but were consistently missing the point of what Jesus was saying, that they were going to be able to supernaturally recall his words and their meaning in order to fulfill his commands and proclaim those words. So there's a sense in which this could be more broadly applicable. We read in Jeremiah and Hebrews, by the way, that I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I think that that's true, and it's something that happens when we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It's a little bit of a loose connection to this text. I think the most directly Jesus is talking to those in the room, that his words would be remembered, that they'd be written down, that they would be here for us today in your Bible. It's not about some new revelation of Jesus' words later on, but about a specific promise for the apostles to, be, to faithfully convey the words of Christ so that they can be carried to the whole world and preserved for generations. And if that's possible, by the way, we can be assured that our understanding and remembrance of Scripture will be aided by the Spirit as well. Now, beyond this specific promise, we see in verse 27 that Jesus also promises peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Again, we see Jesus here caring for the disciples. They were likely bewildered by much of what Jesus was saying. And so he promises that along with the Holy Spirit will come peace. So commentators note here that saying peace, shalom, was a common greeting and farewell. So it's poignant for Jesus to speak of peace in what is his farewell 
discourse. He emphasizes it here. He's doubling down. He's leaving, even giving peace. One commentator notes that in a typical farewell, we can at best hope someone has peace or that God speeds them or that God be with ye, which is where goodbye comes from, by the way. God be with ye, goodbye. So, didn't know that until this week, but, but Jesus doesn't wish it. He doesn't hope for it. He gives it. And it's connected to the giving of His Spirit. The presence of the living God and the indwelling Holy Spirit provides us with that peace of God which surpasses all understanding, as we read in Philippians 4.7. So they need not be afraid, but they should be comforted. In fact, they should be rejoicing. There's a bit of a tone shift here in verse 28. You hear me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. He transitions from encouragement to a gentle rebuke here, I would say. So this was sort of the main point of the children's message earlier, so I'm not going to repeat all of it. Go back and listen if you checked out for some reason. All right. But essentially, Jesus is saying here that they should rejoice, but they don't, perhaps because they're selfish, but also because they don't get the big picture. If they could understand what it means for Jesus to return to the Father, and they loved Him, they would rejoice. If they could see the big picture, how what He was about to do, how His sacrifice, death, resurrection, and ascension would consummate millennia of redemptive history that it would be the means by which the kingdom of God would come, that then he would be seated at the right hand of the Father advocating for them, they would rejoice because this is good news. But they don't get it. They don't fully grasp what it means and what had to happen before Jesus departed. I do... However, I have to take a minute here to talk about that last phrase, for the Father is greater than I. And also, to some extent, I do what the Father has commanded me. Now, I don't think we always want to go down rabbit trails, uh, but sometimes there are some tricky verses where we've got to get a bit theological. And sometimes the rabbit trail just becomes the main trail. It's also the case that it can be hard to talk about uh, the Trinity and Christ well, but I do think it is worth trying to speak about the triune God and the person of Christ insofar as we understand Him as revealed in Scripture. And so I'm going to do my best to do that here today. So why do I say this is a tricky verse? Well, in saying the Father is greater than I, it suggests a kind of distinction between the Father and Jesus that maybe seemingly contradicts the idea that Jesus is divine, that He is one with the Father. If He is less than the Father, does that mean He's not fully God? And so, verses like these, over the centuries, even until today, are used by those who would deny the divinity of Christ or suggest that He is some kind of created being, albeit a very special one. Some heresies, including Ebionism, Adoptionism, and Arianism, 
pointed to these very verses. And it's still relevant today. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons would all hold a similar view of Jesus and point to these verses as well. Others have suggested that he is a God, but a subordinate one, which basically made him a second God. And this kind of subordinationism was also uh, likewise deemed heresy in the early church. But why? Well, a couple of weeks ago, Alden nicely established some of the verses and passages that affirm the divinity of Christ, that Jesus essentially claimed this. And I'm not going to go through all of his arguments there, but I'll point out one of my favorite is in John 8, when Jesus, after a long argument with the Pharisees, in verse 58, that's 58 verses, in the 58th verse, he says, Jesus says to them at the end of this long argument, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. Now, if you know your Old Testament, uh, this is a very pregnant thing to say. Using this phrase referred to the personal sacred name of Yahweh, the great I am. It's not even grammatically correct, right? I referred to, he referred to himself as pre-existing the patriarchs. Understanding what this meant, they then tried to stone him. Because this was blasphemy. He was equating himself with God. But that's what Jesus said all along. In, 10, in, in chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And there's many additional such verses and miraculous acts in the Gospels that are important for establishing the divinity of Christ. However, on the other hand, some want to deny that Jesus was man. And we can't go too far down that extreme either to deny that he was not fully man, because that flies in the face of biblical evidence that Jesus experienced real human stuff, right? He was hungry, so he ate. He was tired and wanted shade. He was sad, so he wept. Many heresies deny his humanity, and so we need to avoid this as well. And if you're starting to feel a little bit afloat about Christ's identity here, don't worry. Lots of people over the centuries have been confused on these points and continue to be. But the good news is here, there is a rich tradition to draw on, grounded in Scripture, that dates all the way back to the first centuries after Christ, that can help us formulate how to think about the interpretation of such verses in light of the whole of Scripture. So with these statements about the humanity of Christ, and yet all these texts that lay bare His claim to divinity, the church fathers eventually arrived at the formulation that the person of Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man. That he was one person with two natures. That as the Son of God, he was one with the Father. He is co-eternal with the Father. He has the share, shared the divine nature or essence with the Father since before creation, since before the angels, from always, from forever. He's omnipotent and omniscient, and all, the thing, all things were created by God through the Word, the Son. He is deserving of all praise and adoration as God because He is God. He is of the same essence or substance as the Father, but He is nonetheless distinct. And the standard language we use here is that there is one God and three persons that all share in the divine nature. 
And so this Son of God, the Word that existed from always, that is one with the Father, the second person of the Trinity in the fullness of time, this Word became flesh, was born of Mary, was human. Without shedding or diminishing His divine nature, He took on human nature. In summary, He is fully God in His divine nature, and in putting on flesh, He is fully human in His human nature, fully God and fully man. The God-man, as some put it, perhaps helpfully, perhaps not. Now, I am going to table discussion of what it means to be a person within the Trinity. I'd like to kind of, I might like to pick this up on Wednesday night Bible study, Uh, but for now, I will simply state that a person in this context is distinguished in the way that they relate to one another and also the way they relate to the word, world, I should say, in their mission in redemptive history. In particular, we see in the redemptive history the Father, the first person, sending the Son. The second person being, and the second person is being sent. So we have sending and being sent. These are the missions. The mission of the Father is to send, and the mission of the Son is to be sent, to become incarnate. But sent to do what? Well, to take on flesh into His person, to assume humanity in order to redeem humanity. So we have this person, the second person of the Trinity that shares in the divine nature, taking on flesh, taking on humanity, human nature, in order to redeem it as God with us. This is the one person with two natures. And so, what do we do with this, the Father is greater than I? And various other verses where Jesus says either He doesn't do His own will, that He submits, that He can do nothing Himself, that He is obedient, and that in this case He is lesser. Well, in light of this one person in two natures, interpreters as far back as Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianzus, Augustine, Shout out to the Classics DMT crew, by the way. Y'all know who I'm talking about here. All the way down to the Reformers have all affirmed that when reading a statement about Christ, maybe especially one that he makes about himself, it can be the case that he is speaking with respect to his human nature, his divine nature, remember, one person and two natures, or both. Sometimes it may not be so clear-cut. Thus, to affirm what Jesus affirms, that, he, that in His divinity, He and the Father are one. He is equal with the Father. He is I am. He is of the same essence as the Father. It is simply cannot be the case that He is essentially lesser, that in His essence, He is lesser. However, with respect to His human nature that He has assumed, we can't say that He is lesser. That's totally appropriate appropriate. It's safe to say. So, throughout church history, it has primarily, primarily been held that Jesus is speaking about His human nature in verses like these. I think we're on pretty safe ground there. So, just to bolster this case, recall He has emptied Himself. He's made Himself nothing. As we read in Philippians 2, that He's made Himself nothing, but has He diminished his divinity? Has he stopped being divine? 
No, because he is. I am, he says. But in the incarnation, he has assumed humanity. And in that humanity, he has taken on something less than divine into his person that it might be redeemed. So, in returning to the Father, he ascends back to that place at the Father's right hand where he existed from the beginning, taking, by the way, his human nature with him. How marvelous. What a mystery this is. And there's much more to be said, including how Jesus can say things like, not my will, but your will. Hint, usually we think will is part of the nature. Or what it means for the Father to command Jesus, which nature is being talked about here, divine, human, both. This move to read Scripture in light of these two natures, natures that, again, I, I must emphasize are grounded in rigorous examination of the revelation of Scripture, is crucial to how almost everyone from the church fathers to the reformers to today arrived at an orthodox understanding of who Jesus is. So he says to his disciples, you should be happy that I am returning to glory, taking humanity with me. The Father is greater than I with respect to my human nature, but I am returning to him. And guess what? I'm preparing a place for you. I'm redeeming humanity. I'm also sending my spirit, the paraclete, who will be the spirit of truth. You should be glad. That's the mission of the spirit, by the way, to be sent as well, to indwell us, to help the church. Further, in the same way that we see that the Son, to see the Son is to see the Father, to have the Spirit is to have Christ. The Spirit is not some lesser God tagging in as Jesus tags out. But in the same way that to see Jesus is to see the Father, we still have Christ with us in the coming of the Spirit. So we should rejoice. We haven't lost Jesus since he ascended. Although, I will say, I very much look forward to the day when he returns. So, he prepares them for his departure. He promises them the Spirit. He promises them that his words will be remembered. He promises them peace. And all these things he promises them ahead of time. We read in verse 29, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you will believe. Not only is he promising the spirit of truth to guide them in remembrance and lead them to peace, but he tells them that when those promises come true, you're going to remember what I said here tonight. And you who have so little faith, scared and afraid, you who are going to deny me in just a few hours, you will believe. When they recall supernaturally the words spoken by Christ in his whole ministry, but in particular, in this room, in this passage we're, we're reading right now, they will be in awe. They will be moved to faith and obedience, obedience unto death. Which, by the way, almost all of them would be killed because of the, their proclamation of the gospel. That's the effect their remembrance is going to have on them. But none of them... None of what came to pass was unforeseen by Jesus. 
How did this little sect of Judaism even survive Christ's death? In part because all that Jesus promised was fulfilled. And oh yeah, because they saw him risen from the dead and ascend into heaven, that also helped, I think. But time is short. There's an urgency to this passage. Right? It's made pass- palpable by the last words in this passage we read by, this, like, by movement mid-conversation. Rise, let us go from here. Do you feel that urgency? I mean, they're in the delivery room here, right? It's happening. Already, Judas has gone to betray Jesus, and things are going to start moving fast. So fast that the disciples, within like several hours, will move from boldness. I will lay down my life for you, says Peter in chapter 13, to public denial, right? That he ever knew him in a few hours. But Jesus knew that too. He even told Peter it would happen before it took place so that when it did take place, they would believe. None of this is unforeseen. None of it is improvised. It is going according to plan. So he says, at this late hour, I will not longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Though events are going to overwhelm the disciples, though they will abandon Jesus, though the ruler of this world, Satan, indwelling Judas as he betrays the Son of the living God, will seemingly seal his fate. In no way is this outside of the Father's divine plan to redeem his creation through his Son. The Son, again, having been sent by the Father, having taken up humanity into His person out of love for us, but also love for the Father, submits the flesh that He has become to torture, pain, and death on the cross. Again, much can be said about this verse with respect to what it reveals about God, but key for us today, I think, is that what is about to happen, though it looks like the work of the devil, that it is the execution of a well-laid trap for Jesus. Though the disciples will think that that's the case, though the devil himself thinks that's the case, in truth, he has no claim on Jesus. The cross meant to rid the world of Jesus was in fact the means to victory over sin and death. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read, The Lord Jesus on this very night we're reading about in this text, when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink, of it, drink it in remembrance of me. Lost my place, sorry. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we remember the work of Jesus, what he has done on the cross, cross but, what, but also what he has promised us in the Spirit on that same night as we eat and drink together in communion. We know that Jesus is with us in the Spirit and we rejoice in that as we look forward to that time when he returns triumphant 
ushering in everlasting peace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Your ways are higher than ours. You know all and see all. Nothing is beyond You, and Your plans are perfect. We confess we do not always see how You are working. We confess we doubt sometimes that You love us. We forget that You gave us Your Son, who faithfully and lovingly gave Himself up for us, that we might come to You. We confess that we think we know better sometimes, and we are angry. We thank you that you are gracious. We thank you, Jesus, in love for us and the Father, you emptied yourself so that you might redeem us. We thank you, God, for sending your Spirit to give us understanding, truth, and peace. We pray that you would come, O Holy Spirit, and fill us Draw us to Christ as we seek to walk in the light of your word. Let us trust in you, the work you are doing, and the ultimate victory you will achieve.